Good evening. If you would turn in your Bibles to First Thessalonians chapter four. Last week we began a new paragraph in Paul's letters. Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, First Thessalonians, likely one of his earliest letters. Probably it seems written uh, just a few weeks after he got chased off from the city of Thessalonica. You can read about it in Acts 17, an angry, jealous mob coming after him, accusing him and those of the way of bringing their lawlessness and their insurrectionist tendencies in the view of these unbelievers to the city of Thessalonica, betraying allegiance to Rome, uh, claiming another king, Jesus. This is all occurring in Acts 17. They go to Jason's house. They bring him out. They're demanding a, a pledge from him. The whole city's in an uproar, and Paul ends up going, traveling to another place. And Paul is writing back to this church, of course, concerned for them because they are still there. Paul is now absent, and he wants to see that their faith is enduring. So he treats this topic in this first letter. How will God help them endure the, the persecution that has come and that no doubt will continue to come? Will they abandon the faith under this pressure that's coming against them? Paul is helping them to see that God will preserve them by strengthening them in their, in their Christian walk, not by making them more covert about their Christianity, more secretive, but actually by strengthening them as Christians, making them more like Jesus Christ to be able to withstand the pressure that's coming against them. And we considered at the beginning of the sermon last week, how according to this letter, Paul kind of establishes these three vital signs of Christian living, faith, hope, and love. These are the things that you could say the doctor would come in looking for to establish kind of a baseline of, is this person alive spiritually? And Paul sees this in their lives. He sees true faith evidenced by Christian love and hope for the future because they've been rescued, even as we sang tonight. We love to tell the story. That's a story of hope. We have expectation of resurrection and eternal life because Jesus Christ is our forerunner, the firstborn from the dead. But then Paul turns in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 to the topic of brotherly love. If you look there in verse 9, now as to the love of the brethren, it's a single word, Philadelphia. We have a city in our country named that the city of brotherly love, as it's known. Paul is treating, he makes it clear, as to the topic of Philadelphia, brotherly love. And he commends them, actually sees this vital sign in their lives. You have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. And I, we kind of considered, began to consider this topic kind of like you're walking into a classroom. And what's the class about? Well, it's about brotherly love. And he gives them a review. You don't have anybody to, you don't have any need for anybody to write to you about it because you learned that last year. You know, all, all of us are, many of us are starting school, right? And you're doing all of this review because your teachers think that you did nothing with your brain over the summer. But Paul is saying, you don't have anyone, you don't have any need for anyone to write to you. And the reason is the credit is due to the teacher. They had an effective teacher who taught them about brotherly love, and he draws attention to that. You yourselves are taught by God. God has taught them to love one another, and that's very effective education. Um, they're demonstrating 
brotherly love in that church, and we won't review all of that. But what's the what's the exam that he refers to that he says how he knows, how he can assess that they really have learned this, that they really are practicing it? Well, it's the fact that they're living it. You indeed are practicing it. You do practice it toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. This is a region on the, if you call it a peninsula of Greece on the Mediterranean. It's kind of the northern part of that uh, peninsula of of which um, Achaia is another region in the Roman Empire. It's kind of the southern portion. But this church in this city of Thessalonica is demonstrating brotherly love towards all of those in their whole region, even like Pastor was referring to this evening, a whole region of churches were, were being built up. And Thessalonica, the church at Thessalonica, is leading in that way. They're, they're actively demonstrating love towards the brethren. And that's how Paul knows that they've really learned this lesson, and they don't need taught about it again. So this topic is one that's essential to the life of the church, Paul says, and he's really commending this church for their the fruit of their obedience in this regard. But he also has in view that love isn't stagnant. Love doesn't just kind of start manifesting itself and then grow content with where it's at. It's not self-satisfied or proud of itself when it meets kind of these baseline requirements. If we're still in the classroom, it's not happy with a C, right? It needs an A+. Demonstrations of love towards God's family are always growing and increasing in those who are truly God's people. So even as Paul commends them in the first part of this paragraph, then he kind of turns to these, you could say, these objectives of brotherly love. And he exhorts them regarding uh, how to persevere, how to press on to strengthen the Christian life. And it's really despite their present success, he's, he's glad for them. He's thankful to the Lord. But you see there in verse 10, and we'll read down through the end of our text. But we urge you, brethren, to excel still more and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your hands just as we commanded you so that you will behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. So I'm going to continue this under the title that we started last week, Abounding in Brotherly Love. We could also call this the Objectives of Brotherly Love. I think that's what's in view here in the second half of this paragraph. But Abounding in Brotherly Love, and he puts that right in the crosshairs here. We urge you, brethren, to excel still more, to excel beyond. Abounding love for their brothers and sisters is what Paul has in view. Grow more in this way, he says. Don't Stop and become complacent with what you've already done. Keep pushing forward. Keep on that same path. It's the right path. Keep going. This might be like someone who just had uh, major heart surgery. He was experiencing these symptoms. Maybe he had some tightness in his chest. He was short of breath and he knew he had a problem. And the doctor says, you need heart surgery. And he has heart surgery and it's successful. And he goes back into the doctor after a few weeks. And he says, doctor, I've been able to start walking up the stairs and I'm walking to the end of my driveway. I don't have any tightness in my chest. I'm not short of breath anymore. The doctor's going to be thrilled about that, right? This, the surgery was a success. This is a major change in his life. Everything seems to be working out okay. But that patient's not going to be surprised when the doctor says, okay, now I want you to start trying to walk one mile a couple days a week, right? 
it's good that your heart is in the right place. It's doing what it's supposed to do, but you need to, you need to keep going in that direction. You need more strength than add another mile and a third mile as you're able to do it. It's a good sign of health when our bodies function normally, right? But the doctor wants his patient not to be content with that. He wants him to push on towards physical strength and health. And of course, when we speak spiritually, it's, it's a credit to God when we show signs of spiritual life. God does that in a person. And when we're loving another person, we love because God first loved us. But if we're going to be we're going to be a strong athlete, you could say, in the Christian life. If we're going to be someone with real stamina spiritually, having real strength and commitment to obey God through the difficult times and opposition against our faith that will most certainly come, we must excel still more. We need more training. We need more repetitions. We need to build strength. And if we tie this to the rest of the letter, God will preserve us as we do this. And he will sanctify us as we obey him in the commands that he's already given us to do. Love one another. This is the new commandment Jesus gave his disciples. As we're obeying, God will sanctify us in that. And as we become proficient in doing what we know we ought to do. So to apply this a little more to ourselves, we, we do, don't we? We always need to be making progress in the Christian life. Even when we, we might not even know how exactly. If I'm already loving people, how could I love someone more? Maybe you've asked yourself question, that question. But isn't it true that as we obey, God often opens up new avenues for obedience? He, he points out new ways that we can obey and new ways that we can deny ourselves and, and serve others. As we grow, God often points out new ways that we ought to be growing. And this really does, I think, touch on the human condition, isn't it? Isn't it true often for us that when we feel like we've learned a lesson, we feel as though maybe that should be the last time that we have to learn that lesson. We can kind of not give attention to that anymore. Or if we're consistently obeying God in a particular area of our lives, then we, we tend to kind of neglect being as careful to obey in that area. Paul is commending them about their obedience and loving the Christian brothers. They're already doing it. But then he exhorts them to abound in that, excel still more. I think that certainly speaks to how we all need to keep giving attention to doing the most basic things, but really the most important things in the Christian life, love one another. So he kind of gives this umbrella objective here on the topic of brotherly love, excel still more. He wants them to be proficient at this. But then he turns and, I believe, elaborates on this in really three parallel ways. If you look there in verse 11, I'm going to add a, a, a word in here that I think is in, it is in the Greek, but it's not in our, all of our translations. We urge you, brethren, I think this will make it a little more clear, to excel still more and, here's the first of the three ways, to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and to attend to your own business and to work with your hands. He gives them three kind of parallel ideas. And then he adds two reasons to the end. Just as we commanded you so that you will behave properly toward outsiders. There's this outward focus really of your behavior. So your reputation needs to be intact. And 
kind of inwardly so that you're rightly oriented to how God wants you to be so that you would not be in any need. I believe what's particularly in view is so that you wouldn't be leeching off of other people. Because of the, of course, God may bring us to a time of need in his sovereignty. So as, as Paul continues to consider the topic of brotherly love, I, I believe in view is this relational aspect of it. And that becomes clear with the words, I think we'll see as we consider these words that he uses, making it our ambition to lead a quiet life, to attend to our own business, our own work, and to work with your hands. These are all targeted at a life lacking in order and in discipline. Paul has in view a disorderly, a, an undisciplined life, because what these words are targeted at are ideas that really smell of noise and unsettledness and busyness about all the wrong things. So I hope, I hope it'll be clear what we're saying and how it's related to our relationships, even in the church and towards outsiders. And first, Paul urges them to pursue, we urge you to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. And I've kind of titled this, summarized this as pursue humility in a well-ordered life. He uses this phrase to make it your ambition, aspire to this, aspire to something. And that has these twin ideas of value it and then zealously pursue it. What is it? A quiet life. But just here, right in this idea of make it your ambition, there are certain aspects of our conduct that we ought to set in our sights as a goal to pursue. Paul is aiming this at their will. You need to, you need to value this, that's your affections, but then pursue it. Make it your ambition. And love for the brethren is one of them. And so is self-discipline. Conduct characterized by these things is something that every church member ought to aspire to. So what are you ambitious for? God has something to say about our values, our goals in life. And God actually wants you to give attention to your character and your testimony because you represent him if you confess him. So God is giving you what should be your ambition here. And it's to live a quiet life, to be Still is the idea to remain silent or to be in a kind of a, a state of tranquility, even or rest. But it also does have this idea of being well ordered, well oriented. This word is translated a number of times. Uh, this Greek word is used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament in the book of Judges to refer to the land because the people were rebelling against God. You read about this cycle in the judges. They rebel against God and God brings a, a foreign enemy against them and they're oppressed and they cry out to the Lord and the Lord sends a judge. And what's added to the end of all those? And the land had rest for 40 years. But then it starts the cycle all over again. But the land has rest. There's no, there's no contention. There's no oppression there. And it's this word. It was undisturbed. There were no enemies ruling over them, raiding them. I think we know really from the larger context of the book of Judges, that that was due to the fact that the judge was alive and the people hadn't returned to idolatry yet. They were well-ordered and there was peace. Proverbs 26.20 says, for lack of wood, the fire goes out. This is very vivid. 
and where there is no whisper, contention quiets down. Quietness, peace, because there's a lack of all of these negative things that shouldn't be a part of your life. So Paul says their desire ought to be to be still, to be at rest, to be in good order. This isn't an ambition to advance yourself. That's often how we use this word, kind of this negative ambition, vaulting ambition. Um, maybe like a, like a parent might have to have their child succeed in all of the ways that they didn't succeed. They have ambitions and it's kind of, it has this negative connotation. That's not an ambition to accomplish our own goals that Paul's talking about. This is ambition to live a life that is distinctly and notably Christ-like for the sake of God's name, by our reputation, and so as not to burden others unnecessarily. I once worked for a man who had three daughters and then a son, and they were all teenagers, and the son was, I don't know, maybe 11, 12, 13, something like that, and his life was a little chaotic, as many of ours tended to be at that age. And I remember him telling me how he was working with his son, Junior, about being a calming influence in the house rather than bringing all of his chaos to the house. And as the man of the house, he wanted to teach his son to be a well-ordered man of the house. He wanted him to learn the discipline of, of daily routine and getting up on time and making his bed, having order, being diligent, keeping a schedule. So he didn't add to all the ruckus getting out of the house in the morning. He wanted him to be, to be quiet, to be orderly. But why does Paul address a life characterized by rest? And how is that related to brotherly love? Well, if we take a clue from 1 Timothy chapter 2, not written to this church, written specifically to Timothy, Paul uses this word when he says, first of all, then I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men for kings and all who are in authority so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. It appears from that that Christians sometimes get disturbed about authorities, especially when they're not praying for them. And Paul is urging prayer so that people would live that kind of life. But perhaps Paul also foresaw something in this particular church, which I believe came to fruit later on. If you turn ahead in this letter to the next chapter, chapter 5, verse 14, Paul says, we urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak. This is really a, an antonym to this word quiet, the unruly, the undisciplined. But then if you turn ahead to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, Really, what he seems to be referring back in this first letter has come to full fruit, and he's writing a second letter to them. And there are a number of words that he uses, the same words that he used back in the first letter. Now we command you, 2 Thessalonians 3, 6, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life. Evidently, Paul saw that there, there were some unruly in that church, and now he's warning about them and not according to the tradition which you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example, because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you, 
nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with labor and hardship, we kept working night and day so that we would not be a burden to any of you. Not because we do not have a right to this, a right to, to earn their living from their ministry among them, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you so that you would follow our example. And here it is. For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Now, such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in a quiet fashion, same word, and eat their own bread. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary of doing good. So admonish the unruly, he says in this letter, the, the rebellious, the idle, the undisciplined. But then he, he calls them out when he writes to them again. And he knew that they needed, while he was there, this particular example of work with their hands. And we'll get to that emphasis in a minute. But he's, he's uh, shining a spotlight on those who are slothful and busybodies and exhorting them to work with quietness. And here in 1 Thessalonians 4, you could turn back there. He's urging them, maybe kind of seeing this in the bud, urging them to make it their ambition to lead a quiet life. That's why I'm bringing this, this emphasis of a lack of discipline and lack of settledness and being a busybody. But before we get to this emphasis on, on the work, so this idea of rest and quietness, how is this related to love for the brethren? Well, I believe love towards brethren isn't boisterous. It's not restless. It's certainly not rebellious. Brotherly love is calm, and it has a calming spiritual influence. This might be as we take the low place with our opinions, as we prefer others rather than insisting on our own way. Certainly, we can pursue this kind of life as we pray. Where there, where there isn't prayer, there's not going to be quietness of life. Our hearts are going to be troubled. So is it your testimony that your heart is at peace, that your life is settled and in order before the Lord? Are you, or are you often set and, and restless? Perhaps that's a symptom of a restless heart. So Paul says, pursue humility in a well-ordered life, as, I, as I've summarized him here. Not, not pursuing great things for yourself, just daily discipline, quietness in your spirit toward the world, toward others, towards God. But then he also urges them to pursue what I've called accomplishment of a God-given work. We urge you, in the second half of the verse, to attend to your own business. This isn't so much as we use this phrase, mind your own business. Did you ever say that as a kid? Mind your own beeswax. Where did that phrase come from? Mind your own business. It's not quite that. It's, it's accomplish your own work. Stick to your own task. Do, do what God assigned you to do, especially as it seems, in contrast to focusing on what other people ought to be doing, both inside the church and outside the church. So don't be a busybody, Paul says. Don't meddle and 
tell others what you think they ought to be doing. And we won't look at the other, some of the other New Testament references to, to meddling and being a, a busybody, but if I could summarize it this way, meddling is, it often starts with idleness, kind of a lack of energy into something productive, anything productive, especially what you know you should be doing. But then it often leads to gossip, kind of this energy expenditure into something that's actually destructive. And often it's paired with kind of this unhealthy influence, maybe an irresponsible use of resources and investment into people for reasons that aren't edifying. If you want to write down verses 1 Peter 4, 15 and 1 Timothy 5, 13, refer to being a busybody and some of the dangers that lie there. Proverbs 26, 17 refers to a meddler getting involved in strife that's not his own. This, this word has the idea of getting excited about, being flared up about, getting outraged or worked up about something, especially about conflict that doesn't pertain to you. And you can understand how meddling is related to gossip. Did you hear about that? Can you believe that he did this? You can almost see someone's nostrils flaring as they get worked up about it. Proverbs 3.30 says, do not contend or quarrel or dispute with a man without cause if he has done you no harm. So you might ask, why why does the Bible talk about this? How is this relevant to me? Well, our world is filled with meddlers, isn't it? Busybodies. The news is filled with gossip. Social media is filled with bickering and really useless quarrels. And politics, it's consumed with finger pointing and being about everyone else's business, right? This is what this person should have done, and they didn't do it. They're trying to win points for their side. And maybe you'd say, you got that right. But doesn't this creep into our lives, too, as Christians? Have you ever taken to social media to tell people what they should do and what they shouldn't be doing? Do you engage in strife over things that really aren't any of your business? Do you you make everyone else's business your business, especially to the neglect of what God has actually given you to do, like loving others and praying and leading a quiet and disciplined life? And we sometimes substitute these things. The fix for this, the fix for us is to give attention to all that belongs to us to be doing. It's very easy for us to notice what other people aren't doing. It's much harder and much more humbling to focus on where we fall short, isn't it? That's the focus of brotherly love. It's it's a humble focus on self rather than a proud fixation on others. So are you obeying God in every way that you know you ought to be? Are you, God's given you a spouse. Are you loving your spouse? Are you walking in the spirit? Are you shepherding your children if you have children? Are you maintaining purity in what you watch and listen to? Are you preferring others? Are you confessing sin? Are you praying? The list could go on. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus preached a way of living characterized by, you could say, humble self-examination. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? This is what Christians do. We must deal with ourselves. Brotherly love deals with self first. That's not, we don't ignore people. This isn't 
navel gazing where we're just fixated on ourselves. Of course, scripture tells us to prefer others. But we must be sure that we ourselves are accomplishing what God has given us to do. That's an attitude of love for God and love for others. Be sure that you're doing all that God has given you to do. Attend to your own business, Paul says. Both at work, you know, in your actual work, your vocation, but also in your, in your spiritual life, in your heart, at home, privately before God, too. But then he also urges them to be diligent, even in menial tasks. The last uh, way he elaborates on lead, uh, excelling in brotherly love is to work with your hands. And by this, I believe he, he has in view uh, certainly manual labor. Labor, I think we could say by application, with the capacities that God has given you in the work that he's provided for you, and really work at it, labor at it. Apply yourself diligently to it, just as we commanded you. Paul had mentioned this particularly while he was there, and he puts them in mind of it. Some have noted how the Greeks, especially where Thessalonica was, of course, this is the Roman Empire, but there's a great Greek influence here. Um, the Greeks especially thought of manual labor as really the work of slaves. It was beneath them. And for those who weren't slaves in this church, this would be a major shift in their way of thinking, maybe in a way that it wouldn't be to us so much. Of course, Paul himself was an example of this by his own tent making. He worked with his hands to support himself, and he explicitly cites himself as an example, a model, a, a type, he says, someone to, for them to pattern themselves after. In the second letter, he writes to them. And the lesson is this. Give yourself wholeheartedly to whatever God gives you to do. That's what he has called you to. Don't forsake it just because you think it's below you. Do what God has providentially provided for you. And I I believe the connection to love is that love doesn't loaf off of other people. Love for others is part of what keeps a Christian from being lazy and slothful. In his work, Christians, I think if you look throughout church history, Christians have, have long been noted for their diligence, for their diligence, for their work ethic, and for their, their humility, even in the lowest tasks. And then Paul turns to a, a twofold purpose as he instructs them as to their ambition. This this well-ordered life, a life well-related and loving towards other, this, others, this has two goals in mind, which I think we could call the evangelistic testimony of our lives, but then also just wise dependence on God. He says, so that, in the last verse, you will behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. You are ambassadors in all of your conduct, is what Paul is saying. He says, so that you will behave, so that you will conduct yourselves. This word is walk. It has to do with your conduct and, and what people know of your conduct, your reputation. So that you will act properly or respectably, decently toward outsiders. This is the orientation of our relationships to those outside the church, unbelievers. We use Paul's words from another place. He's 
interested that these Christians not suffer for their own foolishness or that they not bring disrepute on the name of God by their conduct. He has in view the, the respectability of their conduct toward unbelievers. And if you think about the context that he's writing into, it makes sense why he would say this. Paul had ministered in the synagogue for a number of weeks. People were being converted, but it says in Acts 17, the unbelieving Jews became jealous. They grab some troublemakers from the market. They start a riot, and they're on their way to where Paul was staying at Jason's house. They drag these brethren out before the city authorities. What are they accusing them of? These troublemakers who have upset the whole world have come here too, and they act contrary to the decrees of Caesar. That's what they say, saying that there is another King Jesus. These people are bad citizens. They're insurrectionists. They're traitors. We need to be rid of them. And Paul knows that it is true that the effect that the gospel was having is that it was, it was upsetting the whole world as people were being converted to Christ. And it is true that they were preaching that Jesus is the king of kings. But what Paul was seeking to be sure that they avoided was that it stayed false that they were all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, because that wasn't true. There was nothing to what they were saying. It was the accusation of jealousy, kind of a, a hot button that these Jews knew they could just mash and mash and mash and get their way, right? So Paul says, behave properly, modestly, decently, respectably toward outsiders, so as not to cause any unnecessary offense. The gospel brings enough offense as it is, doesn't it? But in our conduct, we must be very careful not to add to it unnecessarily, especially by rebellion, by rabble-rousing, or by gossip, or by laziness, so that you will behave properly toward outsiders. You represent God towards the outsiders, and not be in any need, not be having any need. Working with the capacity God gives is the ordinary way that God meets our needs. Of course, God supplies all our needs. And Paul writes to Timothy, if we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. So our, our needs are really quite at a minimum based on what sometimes we think of them as. And of course, God can provide in unusual ways for those who can't provide for themselves. If you think about the widow whose flour and oil miraculously never ran out in the time of famine. And the Lord can do all sorts of things. The Lord can leave us entirely dependent on others for our well-being, like Naomi and Ruth, just in his providence. But the, but the best place for a Christian to be, unless God providentially hinders it, is not to be in any need as we labor in the work that God has provided for us. So if we, if we apply this again to ourselves, we ought to keep our testimony as a Christian intact as far as we can, as far as it depends on us. And that is part of love for the lost, being, being a right witness towards those who are looking in. What does a Christian look like? It looks like you. If you claim Christ, what do people learn from your life? But even within the church, 
keep from burdening others unnecessarily. Certainly scripture calls the church to bear one another's burdens. And there are all sorts of ways that we can do that, even physically with our, our physical financial well-being. It's not, it's not to contradict that, but unnecessarily by laziness, by, by a fixation on something else, by not doing what we ought to be doing, not doing what God has given us to do. But then we should also be reminded back to what he says first, behave properly toward outsiders. Our conduct, it does serve God's evangelistic purposes, doesn't it? We do have to preach the gospel. That's our verbal witness. But there is the reality that as we live according to the gospel, we are a living testimony to what God has done in our lives. More specifically, to what Paul is writing here, the good order of our lives is a witness to true spiritual lives. That's not to true spiritual life. That's not something for us to be proud about in ourselves, but something for us to recognize. That when God rescues a person, that changes very fundamental daily stuff like diligence, focus, quietness, and good order. Jesus said again in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verse 16. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. And Peter seems to pick up on this when he says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that the thing in which so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Our conduct matters. Our conduct towards unbelievers, our conduct towards the church. And God has a lot to say about this. May the Lord help us to love him and to love others by orienting our lives to his way of thinking. There really is, I believe, a lot of application here for all of us to consider how our lives are testifying of what God has done to set us in right relationship to him. So becoming a Christian does, does nothing to take away from our diligence, from our, our discipline in our lives. Rather, it leads us towards living an excellent life, a life abounding in all of these wonderful qualities that God produces in us. Really, to conduct ourselves can I say it this way, better than the lost? Not that we're comparing ourselves among ourselves, but we, we ought to be exemplary in our behavior. Not for our own pride, but because that's the kind of life that pleases God and makes much of God in the eyes of other people. May the Lord help us to live for his glory and really distinctively in ways that are honoring to him. Let's pray and ask for his help from Father, thank you that uh, even when you do uh, start a good work in us, you intend to bring it to completion. And Lord, if there's any sign of life in any of these ways, Lord, we've considered love for brothers and sisters in Christ. That's a credit to you. And we praise you for that. And we thank you for it. Help us to press on and to grow to maturity in this way. Lord, we might look at our lives and wonder, how could I grow? Well, 
We are far from perfect and we need your instruction and your discipline. And we ask that you would lead us and bring us to maturity. Make us like Jesus Christ. Help us even uh, this week to walk with you and to be in prayer and to quiet our souls before you and to walk with our Lord and Savior and to be changed into his image as we behold him in the word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.